This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Greater Boston has among the highest housing costs in the nation, driving many low and middle income people to live further from its thriving job market and its mass transit network. This crisis of affordability is primarily driven by restrictive local zoning laws that discourage new, more dense, and less expensive townhouses and condominiums. Massachusetts has attempted to encourage affordable housing in the past with laws like 40B, which offered developers the ability to override local zoning in towns with little or no affordable units. But in the 53 years since 40B's passage, the law has not had the effect of allowing housing supply to keep pace with housing demand. To further address this issue, a new zoning reform law that took effect in 2021 now requires communities near MBTA stops to each zone for at least 750 multifamily units by right. Designed to overcome the weaknesses of the earlier 40B legislation, the law and the guidelines were crafted in a way that encourages local design while also ensuring the units will be affordable for working families eager to be near the transit network. This zoning act referred to as 3A continues to evolve with lawmakers soliciting input from the 175 affected communities as to best ways to blend the need for more housing with respect for each town's design preferences. Is 3A the right law to help address the affordable housing crisis in Massachusetts? Or will it prove to be insufficient to compel communities to develop viable plans for new homes? My guest today is Pioneer Institute's research associate and candidate for a master's degree in public planning at Harvard, Andrew McCullough. Andrew recently wrote a public comment for Pioneer on the 3A compliance guidelines, in which he outlined his view on the merits of the law and where the law may need improvement to achieve its goals. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Andrew McCullough. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the show fellow Pioneer Institute contributor and uh, now candidate for a master's degree in public planning at Harvard, Andrew McCulla. Good to have you back on the show, Andrew. Joe, always great to be back on Hubwonk. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed reading your public comments on the compliance guidelines for the new 3A zoning reform. Maybe a dry topic for our listeners, but I hope we can make it uh, exciting and, uh, and get into some of the details. Uh, as our, our Hubwonk listeners know, zoning does touch many of the issues we cover on the podcast. That includes the high cost of housing, uh, the benefit of mass transit uh, for uh, commuters and the, and the environment, uh, and the encouragement of our Massachusetts economy. We all want to have a, a good place to live um, that helps everyone. So let's start off with the, uh, um, the case for zoning reform. Why do we need to have this thing called zoning reform in, in the state? Yeah, um, I believe it was urban economist Ed Glaser who observed that uh, reforming local land use controls is one of those rare areas in which the libertarian and the progressive agree. Um, obviously, that doesn't extend to every individual with those persuasions, um, but I think that it's a kind of union of uh, kind of advancing property rights and also um, social justice. Um, there are uh, when you restrict the supply of housing, you know, wealthier people tend to uh, bid up the price of existing units that otherwise might have remained more affordable. Um, and so this has huge implications for, you know, who can access uh, 
uh, jobs and amenities in a given area. Because when you restrict the supply of housing in an area, uh, the people who would have lived in those new units don't just go away. They're forced to you know, move elsewhere, further outside of or away from major job centers, um, and often to communities that have you know, uh, worse schools or higher crime, et cetera, than places with the most stringent uh, zoning laws um, now. Um, and so it's really the intersection of uh, economic opportunity, um, property rights uh, concerns, uh, and also the environment, because people living further away from job centers means, you know, you have to drive further to get anywhere. And also um, communities where uh, you're pushed to when development uh, isn't allowed to kind of uh, concentrate within the existing footprint of communities, you know, it, it that development tends to be uh, kind of sprawling and away from, from transit and walkable uh, villages. Well, I'm glad you point that out. I'll, I'll, I'll in, entertain my own little rant here. I, I'm passionate about zoning. And I think um, I have friends who push back both from my conservative friends on the one side and my progressive friends on the other. I'll remind the conservatives on the uh, that are listening that but we are proud of the fact that this is the land of opportunity. So we should all be working to, to enlarge the, the range of opportunity for our fellow Americans. And for those on the uh, on the progressive side, I see many of them in the living in the leafy suburbs with those nifty lawn signs that say, you know, in this house we believe. Uh, they're the same people who will have uh, be at the, the zoning meetings and want to uh, restrict what can be built in their community. Uh, and they, I think, um, uh, as you mentioned so well, uh, they don't realize the consequence of, of uh, limiting um, uh, growth or, or building. It means uh, only very, very affluent people can can live in that community. And if I'll, I'll editorialize one little bit more, in my view, uh, the, the most pernicious effects of poverty or low income is not um, uh, lack of uh, food or shelter or clothing. It's rather the the isolation that's created in those communities where they have very few links to a good education, good employment, or connections to those civic institutions, you know, those little platoons that, that uh, connect us to the greater society that'll serve us for the rest of our lives. So uh, zoning reform is important to me from my perspective because I want to make sure that uh, lower income um, Americans aren't, in a sense, isolated from the society and the community and the employment world. So, so I'll set to you know lay my cards on the table at the start of our conversation and, and dive in from there. So, um, so let's follow the the history of zoning reform. Uh, back when I was at Kennedy School, we we studied a lot about this 40B. This is back in 1969. It was a an aspiration to uh, uh, encourage communities to build a. Uh, uh, more diverse housing supply. Give us a little history on how uh, what that 40B uh, entailed and what have been the results. Let's start with the positive effects in the last, I guess, 50 years now. Yeah, so Chapter 40B basically mandated that every community in Massachusetts um, have at least 10% of its housing stock in the state's subsidized housing inventory, or SHI, uh, to both increase the stock of affordable housing overall and avoid concentrating it in areas that were uh, deprived of economic opportunity before. And like you said, allowing kind of access to high opportunity areas um, for, for people of lesser means. Um, and if you don't comply with Chapter 40B, uh, developers can essentially 
um, ignore certain aspects of your town's zoning laws. Um, and the state can overturn any denial of a project whose residential component has um, at least 20 to 25% affordable units. Um, so chapter 40B's success has been in uh, creating more than 60,000 units of housing that likely otherwise wouldn't have been built over the last 50 plus years. And many of those, those units are you know, permanently affordable, deed restricted, et cetera. So that sounds like it, you know, 60,000 sounds like a lot, although it's 50 years or 55 years, that's uh, you know, do the math, not, not that many. Um, how is uh, its worthy aspirations fallen short? Uh, have, have all the communities in, in Massachusetts uh, uh, gleefully complied with its uh, directions? Yeah, I think you're, uh, you're setting up the uh, <laughs> answer there uh, quite intentionally. Um, so the reality is more than three quarters of communities in Massachusetts still don't comply with 40B. A lot of them have taken the risk over the years that if they don't take steps to meet this, the affordable housing goal set by the state, then developers simply wouldn't propose any projects under Chapter 40B that would allow them to skirt the town's zoning laws. Um, and the last decade or so was really a tipping point in a lot of Boston suburbs in that they started seeing these proposals come through because the market was really hot. The, the rents um, started to justify including these affordable units and the state was more desperate than ever to make a dent in this housing crisis. But at the same time, this sort of coercive tactic um, because of non-compliance with 40B has in a lot of ways deepened the hostility between real estate developers and, and some suburban communities. So I guess that's the negative aspect of chapter 40B. So the need has become greater, the resistance has become greater. Uh, so uh, uh, unstoppable force means the immovable object. So here we are uh, back in 2021, then we passed something called section 3A, we'll call it section 3A, which was meant to learn from the, I guess the shortcomings of 40B and, and try to take another crack at it and, and sort of provide uh, some kind of compromise between the needs of the community and the needs for um, more dense development. So let's uh, let's start with 3A. Um, what weaknesses in 48A did it address uh, and how did it address it? Hmm. So basically section 3A requires communities with access to the MBTA, Boston's public transit network, to allocate at least 50 acres of land near an MBTA station to buy right multifamily housing development of a density of at least 15 acres, excuse me, 15 units per acre. Um, so the law also requires that these new zoning districts accommodate families with children, because oftentimes suburban communities only build dense housing that's made for seniors because, you know, they don't want to have to pay for uh, kids to go to school, right? Um, so this section 3A is an an effort to tie service provision, buses and trains to connect these places to good jobs, shops and recreation opportunities to the state's ambitions to make sure everyone is able to obtain a suitable and affordable home in a tight market. I find that interesting. Um, I don't think that there's anything such thing in 40B, but uh, in 3A, uh, the logic, uh, follow me if, if, if this is true or not, let me know. <clears throat> I think the logic is, if you have a, um, a T-stop and, and it does differentiate between a, a train, light rail or a bus, but let's just say if you have access to mass transit, 
therefore, you have some public good that is you've been fortunate enough to have been built in your town for your benefit, uh, and perhaps as a, as a uh, payback for such a wonderful resource. Uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but I'm going to use payback. Uh, you ought to then, because you have this wonderful benefit, uh, in a sense, payback by providing access or uh, some set aside land, 50 acres, on which more dense housing can be uh, built, with the logic being, okay, the people who move in there can easily get to their jobs using mass transit, uh, fewer cars, it's greener development, and, um, you know, everybody wins, the, the environment, uh, the community, and the people who go live there. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think, you know, you're absolutely right about the the kind of uh, the pact that uh, um, the state is is signing with these communities that if you kind of benefit from having a direct connection uh, via mass transit to greater Boston, all the opportunities that affords, you know, you need to kind of contribute to uh, overcoming barriers to opportunities that are uh, kind of uh, uh, the housing prices and 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 uh, lack of availability of uh, um, appropriate homes for for families, um, you know that's that's what the problem is that that's kind of solving in a way. Um, this this uh, law is attempting to solve. And let's um, be honest: if you have a teeth or a train stop in your town. Uh, your house is more valuable by the, by by virtue of that fact, right? You uh, you know your commuters paradise, as they often say in the listing. Um, how many uh, communities are identified in three A? Um, I know there's three hundred so odd communities in in Massachusetts. How many are connected by by mass transit? Yeah, so the state's definition of MBTA communities um, there are 175, um, almost half of all the municipalities in the state, um, and uh, the state actually further differentiates these communities uh, based on whether they have access to a subway or light rail station, um, rapid transit, a commuter rail station that often travels further distances, uh, or only bus lines, um, or are merely um, communities that are merely close to a T-stop that's located in another community. Um, so there's some differentiation in, in the bylaw, but the uniting kind of uh, factor is they either have um, a bus or train station that ultimately connects them to Boston, or you know they benefit from the presence of a bus or train station in a nearby community. So it could be a, a train stop in your town or near uh, a train stop in someone else's town, uh, but they have different categories. We'll get a little bit into that later on. Uh, of course, now we're talking about a natural tension between um, communities have decided not to uh, build uh, more dense uh, housing, either deliberately or um, uh, less deliberately, um, and, and a regional need for housing, which we all agree uh, uh, is, is, is almost at crisis levels here. Uh, so 40B kind of uh, went in this direction, and a lot of people, in a sense, ignored it. How does 3A... Um, uh, have a little more bite. How does it sort of uh, square that circle? Communities don't want it. Uh, the region does want it. How do we sort of, in a sense, appease or uh, acknowledge and and assuage the concerns of communities uh, that something someone's not going to come in and build something they don't like? Yeah. So Section Three A is an attempt, you know, pretty similar to Forty B in a way, 
uh, to make these towns and cities proactively anticipate denser development so that they can determine its location, design details, and other specifications on their own terms. Um, 50 acres of dense zoning may sound like a lot, but really it's less than 10% of the land within a half mile radius of a given T-stop. So it's still providing some flexibility to local governments in the implementation stage, which I'd say is crucial for the political legitimacy of this process. Also, yeah. unlike Chapter 40B, it's not every community in the state that has to comply with this. It's only communities that directly benefit from the MBTA's services. Um, but even if you're you know, one of those communities, um, I think the, the kind of silver lining is you get a lot of say in exactly what this 50 acres of dense zoning is going to look like in your community. So I don't want to generalize, but I just say, I, I think with 40B, uh, the dynamic was um, for those towns that didn't have uh, uh, diverse uh, housing stock, uh, it allowed a developer to override um, the local zoning and in a sense, build a project and uh, effectively force it on a community. And, and there we had a pitched battle. Instead, this seems like a very, very different approach, which is you say to each of those 175 communities, you know, you tell us where you want the 50 acres to be and you tell and you give us design parameters that uh, integrate well with your community rather than the project be developed and sold. The community itself defines what the project will look like. And, and then, you know, developers can either go after it or not. Do, is that a meaningful difference? Is, do I have that about right? Yes. And I, and I think a big piece I haven't necessarily touched upon so far is, you know, these multifamily zoning districts need to be allow for buy right development. So, you know, in mandating buy right development, the process gets a lot less discretionary for, you know, approvals at the local level. Um, you know, it's still gonna require bureaucrats to interpret the law, but it should be more transparent about why a project is being approved or denied than it was before. And that both kind of uh, affords a, a level of of control at the local level um, in a way that wasn't there before um, because it's either, you know, a yes or a no, and there's, there's not much in between. Um, and it could help uh, potentially reduce corruption in the real estate development process, which has been is an issue in, in greater Boston for a long time. Explain that dynamic. So, okay, in the old world of 40B, um, I wanna build, uh, the town doesn't want this project. I appeal to the state and the state said, no, you got to let this guy build. Uh, but then they drag me through the approval process because uh, they, uh, you know, I have to jump through hoops. Naturally, the big developer who has deep pockets might grease the skids by, um, uh, for lack of a better term, bribing uh, those people who uh, are uh, approving uh, the uh, project. How does, I mean, we can see how the, those uh, incentives would exist, and we don't want uh, this to happen. How would 3A prevent uh, that kind of dynamic? I know this may be a curveball, but how, how do you how would you prevent um, bribery in in this kind of uh, world? Yeah, I think you know, by right development makes it less likely that corruption will occur because you know you really have to determine in advance what the criteria are for whether development's allowed in a given um, site and, and uh, for a given project. 
So hypothetically, it should all be in the, the codes, whether this is um, a given project is allowable, as opposed to having a kind of design review board or a review process among public officials that's more um, up for negotiation. Um, and I think that, you know, our open meeting laws in Massachusetts go a long way towards increasing transparency around this regardless. But I think that there are certainly or could be opportunities under something like Chapter 40B um, to kind of compromise the integrity of officials. Um, and uh, in the past, it's also been controversial when uh, cities and towns kind of require developers to do um, to perform kind of mitigations for the impacts of their project that aren't necessarily directly related to the project. You know, I think paving adjacent streets um, or uh, paying into the kind of the city's uh, school fund is one thing. But uh, if you're um, doing kind of offsite interventions um, and whatnot as a form of mitigation of the town, that gets legally ambiguous. Right. That's the town shaking down the developer. So it goes both ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, again, I, I don't want to uh, put too fine a point on it, but because 3A, uh, the town defines what the parameters of a, an acceptable building are, it has them in black and white, the meetings are uh, public. So provided the developer sticks to that plan, there should, there's no really prerogative to, to shoot it down. You know, you, they have to come up with a reason why it violated the rules ahead of time. We set the rules, you follow the rules, the thing gets built. There's no sort of... Uh, uh, um, back and forth, uh, no no changing of the goalposts, as it were. Uh, that 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 seems to make sense. Um, now we've talked about uh, many of the positive attributes of the uh, 3A and how it, it can encourage towns to uh, have some latitude over what gets built, where it gets built. You in your paper, in your comments, you did have some uh, criticism of where it falls short. Um, I think in particular. Uh, you uh, point out that this 50 acres and 15 units per acre, uh, in some towns, uh, you, you need some flexibility. You need to be able to say your goal is not square miles or square feet, but rather how many units get built. We, we're not concerned mm -hmm. about how big the project is, but how many people live there. Say more about your concerns in that regard. Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, it's 15 units per acre is how dense each zone is required to be. Um, which is certainly less dense than most of the block-sized four to six-story apartment buildings that have been built throughout the Boston region in recent years. Um, and in my public comment, I compare the density level mandated by 3A to a row of triple-deckers in Worcester with enough space between them for each one to have a driveway. Um, but to individual towns can certainly go higher than that, um, but right now, high, higher than that 15 units per acre. Um, but right now they can't go lower. Um, and this is in my mind, an opportunity to have even more flexibility in the implementation stage. I think, you know, density is a, you know, in some regards, uh, a goal in and of itself in that it can require, or it can enable more compact walkable communities but really it's more of a byproduct of the proximity of amenities. Um, and so the section 3A guidelines seem to focus more on the total amount of land area devoted to multifamily housing around the transit amenities rather than the actual uh, number of units that could be created in that zoning district. 
So I think it's a matter of, um, you know, the agency that's responsible for, for crafting these guidelines, the, the Department of Housing and Community Development in Massachusetts, uh, kind of getting its messaging uh, right on this. And uh, I'm interested in how they respond to my comments on their use of land area as an important compliance indicator, as opposed to what I think should be the ultimate goal, um, increasing housing production and ultimately affordability. So you would advocate, you say some town might say, look, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it down to 25 acres, but we'll make it twice as dense. That, you, you think there should be that kind of flexibility based on the Absolutely. needs of the town? And I could I could certainly see a case at the town level for making that sort of arrangement, because if you think about a, a limited area of 50 acres, you know, why wouldn't you want, you know, 25 of those acres to be reserved for open space or new civic uses or or something like that? And I understand that that kind of the a higher density level of 15 units per acre might not feel right to every community, but I think at the very least it should be allowed in the bylaw. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be as prescriptive as it is um, from the state's perspective on the, the total land area devoted to this. Um, that increasing housing production is a much more noble goal than having development spread out over a given amount of land. I did a little, your, your paper sparked my curiosity about uh, how dense my community is. I'm a back bayer. It's a 61 units per acre. So, and it's not such a bad life here. Um, so, in, in, in reading your uh, comments, uh, it seems like there's a, a mandate for, you know, setting aside this land. Is there any specific requirement to actually build there or is the assumption that, you know, if, if you set it aside, you create the parameters, um, the market will take care of itself. Someone will show up and start building. Uh, is there any mandate to, to actually build? Well, yeah, not really. Um, the DHCD has focused on the regulatory aspects of development rather than the kind of ultimate result. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I think there might be some room for a shift in the messaging down the line on this. But right now, I think the, the crucial thing the DHCD is addressing right now is the need for buy right development that occurs with these zoning districts, um, as opposed to making the process um, as kind of messy and, and discretionary as it has been in recent years when these communities have wrestled with the question of density. Um, and so I think if you allow the, the state to kind of, um, you know, focus on the regulatory aspects up front, then, and there's enough flexibility, enough kind of scope to the, uh, the zoning changes, then, you know, eventually if these developments are viable financially, um, some of them will get built. Maybe not all, but I, I think that part of zoning reform is accepting kind of uncertainty in how exactly this plays out. Um, so oh, that's a great answer. So we didn't go into detail, but I'd like to do that now. There are subtypes within um, uh, these communities, 175 communities, but there, I think there's four subtypes um, and each has a different deadline for when it needs to be 
done. And I think in your paper, you mentioned it's it's sort of upside down. The, those communities that um, are perhaps bigger and will have more of difficulty finding 50 acres or whatever their plan is, they're first to comply. And those more rural uh, communities uh, have a little more time. Uh, you, you mentioned it's probably the other way around. Uh, you know, if you don't have wide open space, you, you, you've got a lot of other competing interests. Uh, it's going to take you more time than it will for the um, more rural community. But say more about the four different types and and where those deadlines fall. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's, you know, one of the smaller kind of details in from my uh, my public comments. But I did mention that MBTA communities located on subway and light rail lines, you know, Malden, Brookline, Quincy, etc., have to submit their plans for achieving compliance before more suburban or exurban community commuter rail towns do, like Groton, Ashland, Middleborough. So to me, this doesn't make sense because it's probably going to be harder to determine where to put these zoning districts in already built up communities, um, especially once you consider that a lot of those communities have diverse immigrant groups, significant student populations, et cetera, that might need some sort of special outreach efforts. So there are a lot of other aspects of the guidelines where drawing a distinction among the MBTA communities makes sense, but I don't think the deadlines for submitting action plans is one of them. Now, listeners to this are, you know, again, if they're for or against it, I think there's probably a divided audience. Some are saying, this is the last thing I want, and others are saying, you know, this is a great idea. Um, is there anything, you know, say uh, someone who isn't pleased with the, the idea of 3A, could they be uh, immediately out there changing the zoning laws in their town to, in a sense, make it impossible for these zones to be created? Is is there a sort of a defensive move uh, that that uh, will thwart the best intentions of this legislation? Yeah, that's an important question. Um, so the DHCD wants to monitor communities so that it can uh, rescind a community's compliant status if they change their multifamily uh, transit-oriented zoning districts after the fact. Um, the problem is that's a huge administrative burden on the DHCD to keep track of zoning changes in 175 towns and cities. So that's one of the major enforcement-related questions about Section 3A that is uh, yet to be answered. Um, and ideally, the towns and cities would have to report these zoning changes to the DHCD themselves. Um, but for now, it's unclear exactly how that will be implemented and enforced. Well, that brings me to, again, we're getting close to our, our, the end of our time together. Um, again, we started the show by talking about 40B. Many, many communities just said thanks, but no thanks. Um, really, what power does the state have to enforce 3A? You know, you, you're, you're dealing with a, a zoning requirement, but, the, you know, the community is just saying, you know, thank you, uh, we're, we're all set, you know, don't bother us. What, what enforcement mechanism is there? Yeah, I, I touched upon it earlier, um, but basically there's a rigorous process for coming into compliance with Section 3A that involves submitting action plans um, and later reporting facts about the zoning districts to the DHCD. And the big kind of punishment for not doing so is that the towns that are out of compliance won't be able to obtain state grants for infrastructure, housing choice, or other local capital projects. 
Um, but do all towns, and I think that you addressed this in a paper or a paper you sent to me, I think maybe even in the Brookings paper that you also sent to me, um, you know, only a small percentage of towns get those grants. You know, in general, more affluent communities may not need these these grants. So there, there's no, uh, in the proverbial carrot and stick scenario, there's no carrot. Uh, is there a stick if, if there is no carrot, if the, if the community doesn't need the state in any way? Yeah. Um, I think there's a case to be made that taking away these grant opportunities will not sufficiently deter some communities from simply ignoring Section 3A's requirements. Um, but perhaps a stricter punishment scheme would hurt the political viability of the law overall. So it's a balancing act. Um, I think in the long term, the big stick is that as long as Massachusetts has an affordable housing crisis, you know, this sort of paradigm of the state playing a bigger role in putting forth sustainable development proposals is not going away. You know, California is even further down this path than we are. And even within Massachusetts, I know there are several communities that, uh, you know, learn their lesson on 40B and want to be more proactive about implementing Section 3A. Um, and so, I think the the kind of long view of this is the recognition that you know it's now or never you can plan for for change or you know the state can can kind of uh pull up the rug out from under you take that control away um and you know maybe the ultimatum hasn't quite come to pass for for a lot of these communities yet but i think that it's going to it's only going to get stricter going forward as long as this housing crisis is continues to get worse. So, uh, you know, this is where we'll have to uh, wrap up our show. But uh, to translate that is uh, it's coming. Um, more diverse housing stock is coming to your community. Uh, it behooves the town leaders to make a plan that works for that community. Otherwise, something that may not work as well for that community is going to be imposed on them in the future, inevitably. Is that a fair summation? I think so. I think the, the politics of this have changed rapidly, even in the last 10 years. And there's now a greater kind of recognition that um, that this housing shortage isn't only affecting, you know, people who are, are, are you know, uh, low income. It's also the middle class. It's also, you know, working people, teachers and firefighters and mail carriers. Right. So. Um, and I think that's that started to kind of, uh, you know, change the the calculus on um, to what extent this needs to be uh, top priority on Beacon Hill. Indeed, we want a healthy community and a home uh, for all all the people who work here, not just the you know the very rich and unfortunately uh, the very poor. And we want to integrate communities so that uh, we're bumping up against each other in each of our respective communities. We don't want to be uh, economically isolated or economically segregated. We, we want to have more integrated communities. I think that's uh, music to those of us who love markets ears. Uh, these are artificial barriers, not not real barriers. Uh, and and we'll all do better to uh, to see some reform here. So uh, let's uh, take us out here by telling us where, where can our listeners learn more about 3A, uh, your comments, uh, and how can they, in a sense, uh, uh, bring this knowledge to their next to city hall planning meeting and and, and and engage with their community leaders. Yeah, the, the state has a great web page full of information on Section 3A. 
It's called uh, multifamily zoning requirement for MBTA communities. Um, I'd also recommend checking out um, Salim Firth's uh, uh, great map pointing out which communities are currently in compliance and which aren't. He's at the, he's at the Mercatus Institute, right? Or center, Mercatus Center, right? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean our listeners? We don't all know. We don't all know. Where it is. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Should, ah. All right. <laughs> and I'd also encourage you to get in touch with your local town planner, community development department, or town manager and, and ask about what your community is doing to comply with the new law. Um, and if you want to read my uh, public comments in full, they're at pioneerinstitute.org under our recent uh, research section. Wonderful. Well, that's great. We'll wrap up the show there. That's that's been a lot. It's a lot for our uh, listeners to digest. But I think uh, you were clear. Uh, at least we've uh, wet their appetite for this issue, uh, and then they can uh, take it uh, from there in their own local community. So I want to thank you very much for joining me again on Hubwonk. As as usual, you're a fund of information. Thank you, Joe. Always a pleasure to be on Hubwonk. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me on topics for future episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.